Hi, I'm Suraj Partha. Welcome to Art in All Its Forms. Thanks so much for listening. A quick housekeeping note, episodes of Art in All Its Forms will come out on Fridays, except for this one, which is coming out on a Monday because I had to do some additional audio editing. Uh, Some context to the conversation you're about to listen to. I spoke with my guest, Adam Karelin, both in the middle of May and in the middle of July. And the reason why I did that was there was something Adam was talking about in our first conversation that so nicely dovetailed with the work that Adam is currently doing with the Concerto Chamber Orchestra at USC. And so this episode is the two conversations spliced together. Adam was so much fun to speak with, as he always is, and so I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, so today I'm speaking with Adam Carellin. So Adam Carellin is a composer, trombonist, and conductor based in Los Angeles. He's an undergrad at the University of Southern California's Thornton School of Music, where he studies composition with Ted Hearn and Andrew Norman, trombone with Terry Cravens, and conducting with Larry Livingston. He is currently a remote exchange student at the Sibelius Academy in Helsinki, Finland. So Adam's music has been performed by many orchestras, including the LA Philharmonic and the Kaleidoscope Chamber Orchestra. In 2019, he was named a National Young Arts Finalist in Classical Music Composition and received the ASCAP Foundation Morton Gould Award. Adam currently serves as the music director of the USC Concerto Chamber Orchestra, and in the summer of 2020, he was supposed to serve as a conducting fellow at the Aspen Music Festival until it got canceled due to COVID-19. So in any case, Adam, thanks so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we were talking a little bit in the pre-show about this concept of, <laughs> of getting over yourself. And I feel like all of us in society at large have had to experience this concept of getting over yourself as we're all stuck at home because of the coronavirus. And I think artists have really struggled, as everyone has, but to sort of figure out what our responsibility is, what we can and can't do, what it means that, you know, many of us are probably not going to perform or play or rehearse with our peers in person for possibly another year, two years. And so we've all had to kind of you know, learn these new ways of continuing to be artists and continuing to do things outside of just practicing, you know, we're on Zoom, we're doing uh, live streams and all this kind of stuff. And so how have you coped with this new world that we now live in? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely no substitute for in-person music making. I mean, the, the uh, whole crux of our art is seeing each other, hearing each other breathe. You're a conductor looking the player's either in the eyes or being able to see the nuances on each other's faces. And and this is the same for actors and for uh, all the performing arts, really. There are things that we can uh, accomplish. One of them is composition. So I've definitely turned to that in a more heavy way than my schedule normally allows uh, and trying to write as much as possible during this time. And also the kinds of pieces I'm writing right now. I mean, I'm writing a lot of solo music that can be performed just, you know, in your house with a microphone. Uh, And maybe our goal in being isolated right now shouldn't be to recreate as closely as possible what we normally get, but to find what kinds of things we can create that innovate through these limitations, not against them. 
There was a really cool example that an old professor of mine gave, uh, Nate Sloan. He was a, he's a musicologist at USC. A lot of pop artists, and actually a lot of music critics in general, are often concerned about how uh, pop music is sort of becoming shorter. So our singles are becoming shorter and shorter. Basically, a lot of this is being dictated because Spotify only registers an actual play as being, I think it's like either 15 or 30 seconds in. So pop artists are trying to get you to the get you to the crux of the song as early as possible so you keep listening so that they can get paid. <laughs> and a lot of people are sort of decrying this and saying this is a huge problem. And my teacher was kind of giving the counterpoint, which was, you know, if you consider why we have singles and albums in the first place, that all just goes down to the fact that you could only have a certain, you know, length of time on any particular track before you had to flip over a record or, you know, a CD can only carry so much or a single could only have so much. And even before that, you know, whether it be an orchestral recording or a jazz recording, the kinds of instrumentation you had was always dependent on what you could actually record and get to sound all right. And so we've had this innovation happen all the time. And I think it's important for us to remember that that innovation will just continue now as we do plays over Zoom, which I've seen and am now a part of one of them, doing music in these sort of virtual choirs, uh, you know, virtual orchestras and trying to find new ways to innovate. There is a long history of limitations on the kinds of things we can do. A lot of them are dictated by just basic principles of capitalism. We constantly have to toe this line of, yes, we need to feed ourselves. And also we don't at the same time want to be beholden completely to things like singles and Spotify dictating the kinds of artistic decisions that we're making. So there's a balance to strike here. And the interesting thing is that oftentimes those artists who reject those kinds of capitalistic or societal norms that are, are forcing a large swath of people into making similar artistic decisions. Those artists who reject those principles uh, sometimes become so compelling that the system takes them anyway and mm -hmm. starts getting interested in them because they've rejected this. So it's a really difficult line to toe. It is very complicated because I would say like for every one of those artists that are able to basically bend the system towards them, <clears throat> the same uh, approach doesn't work for, let's say, another 50 artists who are saying, I'm going to do my thing. And then you're like, listen, but, you know, also you're going to have to, I don't like using the word compromise, but you're going to have to adapt in these ways as artists do. Yeah, which is why, I like, I, you know, I don't think about ignoring constraints. I don't think that's healthy, but working through them and using them and bending them and seeing what, what can be done uh, and stretching them even. Um, but also not completely giving yourself into them as the basis for artistic decisions. You know, one of the questions I had for you is to, to what extent do you feel your identity to be more strongly connected to any one of those particular things, whether that be trombone as an instrumentalist or as a composer or a conductor, do you feel yourself identify with any of those, you know, more? No, I have tried to design my schedule so that I'm doing all of those things. So with my trombone playing, I mean, and a lot of uh, actually performers have talked about this. We have an opportunity right now to work through things in our playing when we don't have to perform in public all the time. So this is, this is a great opportunity to really get into some things in my playing that I don't get a chance to fix because fixing them would prevent me from being able to perform that day. You know, these are long-term things. Writing music is writing music, uh, and that's really exciting. But again, you know, the, the things, that, the final stages 
of the composition process, the workshopping, the performance, those things have been modified, but still being able to write. And really interestingly, the one that's changed a lot has been conducting. And that's mm-hmm. a reality that, you know, I've kind of hunkered down for. I mean, we're not going to be in front of an orchestra for a very long time. But this has really kind of gotten me to look at what the essence of conducting is. On the one hand, there's the score study, but I think more importantly, especially with uh, the orchestra that I direct, uh, we've had an opportunity to restructure our administrative framework from top to bottom. And the thing that I am after and that many of my colleagues are after is uh, being a music director. And being a music director is a completely different thing than just getting up on the podium and guest conducting. Administrative work is not separate from conducting. For me, it's like, it's the read making of conducting, you know, and if you haven't taken care of the instrument, you haven't done the maintenance, you haven't put it together the way that it needs to function, it doesn't matter what you're gonna do on the podium, things aren't gonna work for you. So the, the kinds of things you do to secure facilities for your players, to recruit people, to make sure that all of your principal players are the best that they can possibly be, all of the time that you spend into making sure that your orchestra has the resources necessary to do its best is just as important and essential as what you're doing on the podium, if not more so. Yeah, because you affect people's lives, you know, at large. It is very similar to the way that filmmakers talk about running a quote unquote, like a good set, a healthy set, uh, and a set where people feel comfortable to give their best work and to be vulnerable. And so I remember the first film I did, how much of an effect the director had on the crew's morale and how much time he genuinely spent trying to make sure that everyone was happy with what they were doing and they felt like they were committed to their jobs and that, you know, committed to the project at large. On a film set, you may have an assistant director or, you know, a second, second AD, and then you've got all these other crew members below that. But at the same time, you are ultimately responsible for all of this, including like the the crew and the cast's morale, which is something that I just, it wasn't apparent to me until, you know, I did more of that kind of work. And then as I was a percussionist in the concerto chamber orchestra and you're conducting that group, the difference between you conducting and someone else conducting isn't just what happens with the baton or just what you say in the rehearsal, but it's often the attitude that you bring to the whole endeavor. Yeah, and and the behind the scenes stuff, which takes up so much time and mental energy And again, it's just as essential. And my big concern is that people aren't thinking about it in this way, especially pedagogically. So many grad schools, top grad schools, you know, spectacular world famous conservatories structure programs that put you in front of a lab orchestra for 15 minutes a week. And the lab orchestra is playing together for the first time. You're conducting this piece for the first time. The players are barely watching you because you're the seventh conductor that they've seen today. The entire time you're trying to get a good recording of yourself on the podium, your teacher is running around making comments to the players and to you, and you're up there for 15 minutes. And then at the end of two years, you are now a master in conducting. And there's this huge disconnect between the kinds of educational values that we're instilling in these programs and what the outcomes are. Yeah. I mean, is that something that you feel like we're having to address more and more now, just particularly because we don't have these other aspects to work on? Or do you think that actually, in some ways, we're still willfully neglecting? <laughs> I, th- I think these aspects these are still being willfully neglected, you know, and I think um, what, what a lot of conductors are doing right now is, you know, 
uh, either recording themselves waving their batons around to a click track. Right, which is very funny because in reality, like, you know, they can't see you conduct while they're recording their version of the thing to the click track. For those of you who don't know, you know, if you have different players in different sessions or different parts of the world, let's say, you need to have some kind of metronome, like a basic click track, just a like some kind of a snap so that everyone can coordinate what the hell is going on at the same time. And if you don't do that, you're really screwed when you're trying to record something. And if you're a conductor and you have to conduct based on someone else's recording of something, and all of this is a moot point because, again, the, the players and the singers aren't watching you when they play and sing if they're in their bedroom. Exactly. So, you know, people are either doing that or they're uh, score studying. And score studying is incredibly valuable. But again, there are so many people who have done the homework and who have studied, but they're not set up to take on a career as a music director because they're missing all of these other components. I, I once heard the role of the conductor described as being a general, a diplomat, an artist, and a scientist rolled into one. Mm. Yeah, that's a striking description because it's kind of like, uh, what is it, the USC? Yeah, it's the USC statue of Douglas Fairbanks, and he's standing up there, right? And the only things you need for a movie are a script and a sword, right? The idea of like really going into it and like going in with courage and also having a plan at the same time. Everything that you just described uh, as the role of a conductor is the role of a film director, like verbatim, because all you're doing on the podium is solving problems, whatever they are. And they come from all different sources because it can be literally anybody. It can be like someone in the house who's like gonna be mixing something at the Hollywood Bowl. Then they gotta come and talk to you about whatever. And that has nothing to do with, you know, the literal playing of the piece or the measures or the dynamics or any of that stuff. That's totally separate. And for film directors, the kinds of ridiculous problems that will pop up on a film set. I just did this movie called 420 and like the intricacies of weed that this director had to get into, it was like on a whole different level. <laughs> I was so impressed. You know, just like a person who went to film school is having to deal with this whole new topic and like hire all these people who can come in and help talk about it. It's a whole different world. And this is something I admire so much in filmmaking, in pop music, and all of our other, you know, very visible fields that are out there that are more visible than classical music. And it's Again, because a film director doesn't stop caring about the film when he's off the set. The director has to do a million other things. They have to, you know, understand what's going on with the script. They need to find a set designer. They need to be able to make sure that the music that's going to accompany the film reflects the vision that they had while they were directing it in person with the actors. And we have major, major blind spots in orchestral music. And you see so much content that gets put out there by really prominent classical artists that visually just doesn't look good or that has really poor production values because people are kind of doing these things themselves. And we sort of write it off in our field as, oh, well, you know, that was just done by them individually. We can't expect them to have high production values or we can't expect them to have high graphic or visual design elements. But that's not true because we look at our colleagues in the pop world and in the film world. And when people put stuff out, it reflects the work that they're doing. It reflects the quality that they care about. The logo that you put on something matters because that is the first way that somebody interfaces with your art. I mean, you have to start from knowing your craft. 
But I think we need to expand what it means to do the craft. You know, if you're going to put on a recital, you first need to spend, you know, all of this bulk of your time into preparing yourself musically, being able to play etudes that will let you play the pieces that you're working on, putting together the pieces, working it, working it out with your pianist so that you're able to make great collaborative chamber music. And then the next step that has to follow is, okay, how are you going to market this recital? What do your programs look like? You know, what kind of event have you been able to organize? What kind of facility did you get booked? How big was the audience that came to see you? Were you able to live stream this? Did you link this up to your website? All of that becomes an extension and a continuation of the craft without sacrificing how much time you spent preparing the recital musically. So I think this idea that, okay, we, well, you know, we're going to take away some of your degree requirements. We're not going to make you take post-tonal counterpoint and <laughs> we'll go let you take a jazz drumming class. You haven't solved the problem which is that when you put together your own craft, you need to be able to take it beyond just making sound and see how is that going to be presented to your audiences. Going off of that, let's now jump to the conversation that Adam and I had in mid-July. All right, Adam, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Sure. So we recorded our conversation back in May, and one of the things we talked about was how we can use the constraints that we're facing in this particular time to find new creativity. So tell me about this new project that you have with the Concerto Chamber Orchestra. Yeah, so a couple of months ago when we realized that the entire fall season was going to be online, we realized that our organization didn't have any experience to put together remote concerts and remote productions uh, so I thought it was really important that we spend the summer on putting out at least one project that would involve a smaller subset of our orchestra members. Our orchestra has 86 active members. Uh, and so we decided to do a smaller scale project with just a couple people. So I, de I decided we would do uh, Sanson's Carnival of the Animals. And we had kind of, Two goals with it. The first goal was figuring out how to get everyone's recordings. You know, what kind of recording guidelines do you have to give non-music majors versus music majors? What kind of click tracks do you have to provide them with? How many takes do you have them do? What kind of feedback do they need? There was kind of that logistical end of things working with the musicians. And then there was the back end of it, the production, the editing, the audio editing, the video editing, the storyboarding, and what we were going to have it look like. And in terms of the constraints, I mean, the constraints are really squeezing you the whole time, right? You can't hear the other musicians. You can't tune things with other people. You can't balance. All that has to be done in post-production. But the one kind of big saving grace of these COVID restrictions is that these videos that folks are putting out don't just have to be Zoom quadrants the whole time. And we realize that if we use... Even on our shoestring budget, which I'm very proud to say was a grand total of zero dollars, you're able to put together visually stunning content that you can't do in person. You know, you can't have uh, a giant animated turtle in person without putting a giant screen in front of the audience's face. <laughs> so let, let, let's talk about this piece a little bit, because I know for many of our listeners won't be necessarily familiar. So the Carnival of the Animals by Camus. Saint-Saëns, that's my take on French. Um, so tell me a little bit about the history of this piece and uh, sort of the, the subject matter, which is maybe self-evident. 
Yeah, it's kind of a, a spectacular piece of his output because he forbade performances of it for the duration of his life. Uh, he, you know, took himself very seriously as a composer, wanted to be taken very seriously as a composer. Um, and so this piece was written in Austria and he did not want this piece performed ever during his lifetime because <laughs> he thought it would detract from his reputation as a serious composer. The only movement that he actually did allow performances of was the Swan, uh, which is, of course, has gone on to be this big, famous cello solo that folks play um, independently from the rest of the work. But it's this 14 movement kind of saga of 25 minutes. And it's been done so many times in so many ways. The great thing about this piece is that it's written for a, a small a small ensemble of maybe about 14 uh, musicians. So it's not like this giant orchestra piece. Sometimes it's done as an orchestra piece. But the convenient thing is that with having 14 musicians, we were able to work with people individually. Now, the interesting thing is that when we reached out to our orchestra and started recruiting people, we got way more interest than we expected. We kind of put out an email to all our violinists, all our, all our string players, all our wind players, you know, let us know if you want to be involved. And we ended up getting over 30 people on the project. And we also were able to find a bunch of other pianists. We found uh, eight pianists who were interested in this. And this piece uh, has famously has two big piano parts. It's a kind of war horse of the, the piano repertoire. So we found a lot of piano majors at USC who normally wouldn't get to work with our orchestra, uh, who were really excited to come join this project. This piece is just wild. Just the title of the movements alone is so interesting. And I'll, I'll spare myself the humiliation of trying to do this in French. But... You know, you have like the introduction and the Royal March of the Lion. The second movement is hens and roosters, uh, wild donkeys, swift animals, tortoises. There's, you already mentioned the swan. And then there's this piece in here uh, called Fossils, which is kind of funny because Sanson kind of takes these other musical works and alludes to them in that piece. So he's really having a fun time with the composition of this. And I think that, as you mentioned earlier, he took himself very seriously. I, I was doing research on this, and he took himself very seriously, and he didn't want anyone to perform this until after he had died because he was afraid that it would affect his reputation. But there's so much humor and joy in this that I think it's really great that, as an orchestra, you took a very humorous approach in terms of the way that you presented it. So I'm going to link to some of these videos in the show notes. But even if an audience member just you know watches one of these, they'll see like how much work is done in terms of graphics. And you've got like in that hens and roosters one, there's a section where the CCO logo is like hitting all these eggs and then the eggs open up and then you see a little picture of the person who's playing the music. I think is it in Wild Donkey Swift Animals where the there's two piano players and they're playing a bunch of runs going up and down. And then there's like an image of a donkey kind of going up a hill and then falling down the hill. And then, <laughs> so it's just like, it's kind of got this like meme-like quality, which is a very 21st century idea, I suppose. Um, tell me about how you came across those ideas. Were they sort of evident in the pieces themselves? Or like you mentioned you're doing some storyboarding. So how did all of that come about? So one of the big reasons that I chose this piece is that it is indeed a programmatic piece. You have a clear narrative of what 
is supposed to be happening at any given moment. And that makes it much easier to kind of start expanding what the visual possibilities are. If you know who the main character of this movement is supposed to be, you have a starting reference point for the video. The other thing is that the pieces themselves have such tight, really clear, dramatic arcs. And there's really funny stuff that happens in there. And when, when we listen to this piece with, um, with the donkeys, it's like you just have these kind of up and down curvature arcs that are happening in these runs. And you have these donkeys and they're supposed to be running because they're fast. And so, of course, immediately your kind of your brain goes to this rising and falling motions. Um, so there, there's just a lot by listening to the piece over and over and over again uh, in order to give folks feedback. You start kind of developing ideas for what might happen. Of course, the other big thing for the visual elements is that we have a lot of visual collaborators for this project. Yeah, you have to talk about about this because I was shocked to hear just in the pre-show as we were talking that you did not have a graphics designer come in and design any graphics. That's like you and other orchestra members putting this together. So you have to tell me about this. This is amazing. Yeah, well, so visually we've been looking, again, mo like mostly public domain images, uh, but I'm really excited about specific organizations that we've partnered with in order to get footage for this thing. The seventh movement of uh, the Carnival of the Animals is the aquarium. So we've partnered with the Aquarium of the Pacific, who have given us a ton of fantastic footage that we're going to be using for that. And then we've also partnered with one of our sister organizations, a non-dance major dance company at USC. This is the Chamber Ballet. And they have choreographed, I think, five of the movements that we have. And then, of course, today, starting today, uh, when we released the tortoises, we have a couple of Kaufman dance majors who are choreographing their own solo movements. So the minute you've got a dancer coming in or, or a group of dancers, or you have this aquarium footage, that also kind of takes care of some of the, the visual elements. It gives you a focus and, again, a starting point for what we need to build around. At, at the same time, it's really crucial to honor the work that the musicians put in in filming themselves. It's it's not a trivial thing to film at home, especially if you're in a tight, cramped apartment space. Maybe that was the only sliver of wall you were able to find and use at a particular time of day. I mean, I, I live in a building as well, uh, not in a standalone house. So I, I know the, the, the struggle of finding a space at a time. You can't just record at three in the morning when you want to. Honoring the musician videos and honoring the visual elements of the work by bringing in these outside graphic elements and then collaborating with other organizations who also provide visual elements for this work. Yeah, I'm very excited to see the rest of these pieces. And then there's going to be a watch party coming up at the end for the finale, and we're going to watch all of them in a row. So what day is that? That's July 31st at 6 p.m. Pacific time. And I'll put a link in the show notes as well so that anyone who wants to come to the watch party can do so. Um, let's kind of get into the nitty gritty in terms of like how you're putting all of this together day by day, week to week. So obviously you have the, the musical piece and then you've, you have some basic ideas of like, okay, this is what I think visually needs to happen. And then you're storyboarding this and then what, what kind of happens from there? Yeah, and our storyboarding has actually been improving the more we've been working on it because we, once we see how the first couple of movements slot into the software, we sort of realize what is easy to accomplish, what is difficult to accomplish with the software. 
And that doesn't necessarily always translate into what looks better or what looks worse. There are just some things that the software does really, really well and some things the software doesn't do as well. We've also been learning a ton about editing and watching videos on, on how, to, how to put this stuff together. Again, it's a team of non-experts. I was going to say, like, this is basically how does it feel to become a filmmaker for a couple of weeks? Because you're having to do the grunt work of like literally sitting in Final Cut and editing these pieces together along with whoever else in the orchestra is doing so. Yeah, the number one person to acknowledge is the brilliant mastermind genius, Linda Diaz, who has been the person who is in Final Cut. We're all there with her and at contributing ideas and storyboarding, doing all these things. But she is the one with her finger on the trackpad doing this amazing work. For me and my assistant music director, Aiden Gold, we've both been doing a lot of the audio editing. And it's very much conductorial. It is the most conductorly thing that I have gotten to do since the start of the pandemic. The whole process, giving people feedback, such good training grounds for conductors. You line up all these logic files, you start listening. You have to pinpoint exactly where that random violinist was out of tune. So you've got to find it, pinpoint it, and then write feedback that makes sense and is empathetic and will work for that musician. And then at the end, once you get all your final drafts, when you're EQing everything, you're balancing everything, you know, this note was out of tune, this has got to get moved over, this wasn't lining up, you're doing these things that you would normally do in a rehearsal. And it makes you realize that the overlaps between editing and directing an orchestra are incredible. So I'm going to do something I don't think I've done really on the podcast, and I'm going to play devil's advocate for a moment. What if someone were to say to you that the visuals detract from just hearing the music? So on a philosophical level, do you feel like, how do you manage that balance of visuals being distracting versus them complementing the piece versus them providing uh, a different way in for the listener? Yeah, I I've been going to concerts since, or, you know, specifically classical music concerts since I was 10 years old. And the first big classical music concert I went to was an opera. It was Rossini's Il Turco in Italia. Seeing that production was incredible. It was at the, at the LA Opera at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. It was this gorgeous, visual, stunning set. And I actually was thinking about that when we were putting together one of these movements that had these amazing, like, slow-moving sets that would move over the stage over the course of 25 minutes. And there's singers on it, there's stuff happening. I mean, it was this just, like, visually stunning production and musically stunning production. There's a basic reality that it's time that classical musicians acknowledged, which is that the vast majority of our audiences are not blind. And they sit in concerts with their eyes open. Yes, sometimes people close their eyes. Sometimes it's because they fall asleep. Sometimes it's because they just don't want to look at the bald spot that that random musician has. There's all sorts of reasons that people are closing their eyes during these concerts. Uh, but for the vast majority of the time, for the vast majority of people, eyes are open. And there is a visual that we are presenting, whether we like it or not. When you have a concert in a concert hall, the visual you are presenting is a bunch, like 60 people in tuxedos playing their instruments. That's the visual. We can either ignore that reality, which is kind of what our field has been doing for, for a very long time in the concert space, which is not what they do in the opera space, but in the concert space that gets ignored, or we can have this reckoning moment and understand, wait, you know, this, this is an opportunity to do stuff. 
And it's the same way you, you have filmmakers and, and especially composers who write for film who know there are certain moments where you need to have a lot of dense, saturated music, and there are moments where you need to pull back and turn it off and just let the, let the work speak for itself. I like this, and you're flipping it. That's so funny. That's so interesting, right? Because from a film perspective, you're thinking, okay, well, maybe we need to tone down the music here because we need the audience to be focused on what's the sort of the primary story, which is what's happening on the screen in terms of the acting and in terms of the writing. And now you're flipping it because now the primary story is what's happening in the music. And so then you're thinking about toning down the visuals. Oh, I love that. That's great. Yeah. So, so I hope over the course of the festival, uh, folks will see that some of these movements will have less loud visual elements um, and, and let the music come to the fore. So it's a balance very much. I think what you're doing very nicely in this Carnival of the Animals is is you're kind of giving the audience just an extra way to think about whatever it is. I mean, if it was just the music, they'd be imagining these donkeys. And in this case, you're giving them an added visual element to maybe also take the story in a slightly different direction. And they're still going to be thinking and they're still going to be experiencing the music, but you're kind of nudging them in this different way as well. Yeah, and again, this is a piece where it's like it has these titles that mean very specific, concrete things. Not every piece lends itself to that. Some pieces are far more abstract in what they're talking about, and that requires a different kind of visual language to implement. And that's something that, again, visual artists, you know, they've they've had that memo for forever. They know that there's things that are concrete, there are things that are abstract. Those visuals can work fluidly to accommodate the needs of the subject matter. And again, that is something that I hope we can bring into classical music is having this fluidity of the visual elements. There is something very richly traditional and in a way very ritualistic about seeing that group of 60 people in tuxedos in a concert hall. But that's one visual and you can do that visual, but if that's the only visual that you ever do, you are missing the possibilities of doing something that fits the needs of that piece that you're playing. So let's imagine for a second that every person in the classical music world saw one of these videos. What would you hope they take from it? And how would you hope that the classical music scene as a whole might change? What kind of a movement are you trying to bring about if there is such a thing? Well, in a very interesting way, I think the point of these videos is art in all its forms. Okay. All right. Okay. You're... <laughs> It's been very inspiring talking to you, especially when I was coming up with the idea for this festival two months ago. And that, that is what we were talking about, is the idea of art in all its forms. And that musicians don't exist in this kind of magical silo that's elevated above everything else. We're artists and there are so many more possibilities for what we can be doing when we collaborate with other artists. That's, that, that's really the takeaway. And this brings to this kind of larger consummate total where we're trying to address all of the different senses that our audiences are going to be using to engage with our work. And it's at the end of the day, it's, it's storytelling. It's not always a direct narrative. Sometimes it's abstract, but it's always trying to reach our audiences through as many gateways to their understanding that we can. I, I also want to take a moment to talk about programming and how things have to be going forward. We are, Finishing off this festival, it was started uh, at the beginning of May, um, but we're looking forward to our fall season and 
what it means to play music in this country right now and to make any kind of art and to be a citizen in this country at this moment in time. And it's the basic fact that since the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, white people in this country seem to have woken up. And it's late. We're 400 years late to reckoning with the problems of systemic racism that exist here. But with this social movement that has started around his murder, it seems that there exists a path for starting to do the work of reparations in music, in society, in life. And it happens on every level, depending on where it is that folks have power. An orchestra is not the federal government. You don't have the power that the federal government does. The federal government has its responsibilities. Local governments have their responsibilities. But at the same time, orchestras do have their responsibilities with the kinds of things that they are programming and featuring and doing. We made a commitment very early on to feature in the course of our season the music of black composers for the entirety of the season, black composers and black artists. And in putting together and planning the season, we have seen the really insane extent to which racism is entrenched in the classical music system. Looking at the music, for example, of San George, who lived at the same time as Mozart, was arguably more famous than Mozart at the time, you go on IMSLP, which is this website where you find all the public domain works of these composers, you can barely find anything by San George. You look at a piece by Mozart, there will be 50 different editions available for free online because the system has done the work of curating his music. You go on San George's page, you can barely find anything. There are missing scores. There will just be a piano reduction. The same thing with composers like Samuel Coleridge Taylor with Florence Price. These composers have been systemically and purposefully excluded out of the system. So we are looking to program, we're looking forward to programming and playing their music, even during this pandemic, uh, with the intent of restoring them into the repertoire. And that means actively featuring them as much as, as humanly possible. At the same time, we are establishing two season-length artist residencies, one of our first artists uh, is going to be Kyle Lux, who's this incredible uh, singer, songwriter, performer, uh, who we're going to have with us over the course of this season. Developing long-standing relationships with artists so that we're able to feature the work that these, these, these folks are doing. But it's really learning the things that we're learning from, from this Carnival Project, learning the things that we have worked on over the course of our lives, on, on our craft, on our technique and on using it for something, for some kind of restorative justice in whatever form it takes, I think is the goal. And we're, we're, we're lucky in a way, th this orchestra, that we don't have these big donors because the problems in this country exist at the intersection of capitalism and racism. And those two systems feed into each other and reinforce each other. And the fact that we're not beholden to any donors means that we can start re-examining our own past racism, our own continuing biases that we have, questioning those biases and actively working against them. There's no salaries at stake here. There's no livelihood at stake. Those things being at stake 
doesn't excuse anyone from not re-examining their own issues. But it has enabled us to act very quickly because we're not beholden to moneyed interests. Well, I applaud that and I'm very excited about these changes. I support anyone who is trying to use their platform and their voice to do their part in fixing these systemic issues. Um, and like you said, the orchestra is not the government, certainly, but in its own way, the orchestra has a power that the government doesn't have. And leveraging that power to make changes that benefit people who have been marginalized is something worth doing, no doubt. With that being said, I, I really look forward to you know the rest of this festival and the rest of what CCO is going to be doing in the next couple of years. And I want to shout you out as the leader of this organization. I think you've done so much. And you've made a very big difference getting to be a percussionist for one year in an orchestra that, you know, you were uh, at least at that time it was guest conducting, I suppose. But now being the director, I'm very, very excited to see all of the various ideas and all the various commitments that you've made come to fruition in the next couple of years. Thank you so much, Serge. And thank you for bringing together all these different artists on your platform. You can subscribe to Art in All Its Forms on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Art in All Its Forms Pod. That's Art in All Its Forms Pod. Uh, if you want to send us an email with uh, comments, questions, concerns, musings, you can email us at aiaifpod at gmail.com. That's A-I-A-I-F-P-O-D at gmail.com. Thanks.